So over the past weeks, uh, we've looked at subjects like intimacy and friendship and going out and marriage, and tonight we look at what it means to be single. What does the Bible have to say about being single, and how does the Bible understand such a thing, the position of people who are not married? And how do you live in a culture seemingly obsessed with sex and a church which at times, if we're honest, often seems obsessed with marriage and relationships, so much so that they have a sermon series about relationships. But it struck me this week that often a single person in Scotland, in the church, in the evangelical charismatic church in 21st century uh, Scotland, is a bit like a sort of person between a rock and a hard place. Because you live in a culture, a society, which is absolutely bombarding you with sex and sexuality and the, the impression somehow that you should be having sex all the time because everybody else around you is having sex. And yet also, if you're a Christian and you're part of a church like this one, then it can seem quite a lonely place. Because churches like this one can often seem only really to be concerned with people who are married or people who have children, people who are in families. How do you live in that place with integrity as a Christian and as somebody who is single? And also for those of us who are married, well, what does the Bible have to say about how we should think and operate towards people who are single? For many in our society, this is a real issue. The number of single-person households is now over 7 million people living as so-called singletons. Uh, that was Bridget Jones's uh, phrase to describe herself. And for many people, Bridget Jones became the icon uh, as she negotiated the smug marrieds around her, people who she just hated being around, people who her parents would constantly ask her to, to meet at dinner parties and who would invariably say, can I come and get you a drink? And by the way, how is your love life? And, and Bridget Jones said, just how bizarre a question that is. And she would never dream of going up to somebody who is married and saying, how's your sex life? But seemingly people who are married seem to think it's okay to ask people who are single, how is your love life? But as I say, single people in the church can often feel even worse. They can feel excluded from things called family services, from marriage courses. The church that they perhaps are a member of support an organization like Care for the Family. There's no organization called Care for the Singles that I know of. Um, I, was, I was looking for images around family services and family worship. There are hundreds of them on the internet. And that is a typical picture of what it means in some churches to call together, to come together as a family to worship. The picture is of a family. Do you see the, the married couple right under the center of the cross? And they have three, 3.4 children. Um, to that side um, is a sort of single parent person um, who's by themselves. Um, and, and down here, drowning, is a single person um, by themselves. Now, inadvertently, that is how the church, the evangelical, the charismatic church, can often come across to people who are single. 
And I don't mean to underplay the pain, the genuine pain, the genuine distress, the genuine frustration, and at times, if we're honest, the genuine anger that single people can often feel in a church, especially in a church like this. It's one of the reasons why we don't have family services in this church. We call them all-age services. We deliberately choose not to use the word family. If you can find the F word, that's F word, anywhere in our literature, website, please tell me, please tell Libby, please tell Rich, please tell James, please tell uh, Gemma, our children's director, because we don't want to be exclusive in the way in which we think and talk about each other. We don't recognize those hallmark festivals of Mother's or Father's Day because we're aware that often for single people, something like Mother's Day can be really, really painful. Um, one church that I worked at, um, we, we used to celebrate Mother's Day in a big way. And so everybody um, was, was given, um, well, at least to begin with, the children were called forward to get a bunch of daffodils and they would take the daffodils out to their mum or their grandma or their carer but then after that came this sort of excruciatingly painful moment where those of us who were leading the service would say it would be so lovely if, if other people could come forward and and give it give a flower to another woman who hasn't been given a flower yet and there was this sort of murmur went through the congregation as people looked around for women who hadn't been given a flower yet. And it was that sort of this stigma. Oh, only stage two. Um, either it was somebody who was married, who didn't have children for a whole host of reasons, or somebody who was divorced, or somebody who was bereaved, or somebody who was single. And it sort of made this strange and painful demarcation. So that's why we don't do Mother's or Father's Day in this church. Father's Day, however, is next month, and I'm just laying it out there for my family um, just to remind them. But as I say, we want to recognize that it is not always easy to be single in a church like this one in the 21st century. And... As far as I can, on behalf of church leaders, I want to apologize to those of you who have ever felt stigmatized, highlighted, prejudiced against because you were or are single. For the pain that you genuinely have felt, the tears, the anger, the frustration that you felt. I do apologize when that happens. Now, obviously, I am not single. I was single for 27 years, but for the last 28 years, I've been married. And therefore, it would be unfair of me to preach the whole of this talk, imagining what it's like to be a single person. So what we're going to do, I'm going to lay out the sort of biblical background over the next 10 minutes or so. And then I've asked three people who are single and are part of this church, um, Joe Hockley, Tim Weir and Gemma Stoddart, to come. And that's why the stools are here in this sort of representation of either Westlife or uh, a really bad Eurovision band uh, that may occur later on. And I'm going to ask them some questions as to what it's like to be single and what it's like to be single in this church. Because I don't know what it's like, what it feels like 
to be single in this church. But firstly, what does the Bible say? Well, a reminder, as we began our sermon series a few weeks ago, that God made us to be sexual beings. He made us, he created us for intimacy. You and I are made for relationships. We're made for friendships. And we need, and indeed we crave, intimacy. Intimacy is not the same as sex. Some people, particularly in our society at the moment, can mistake one for the other. But in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, uh, God looked at Adam, man that he had made, and even though Adam was in perfect relationship with God the Father, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And he created woe man, Eve, to be a companion, to complement and indeed to complete Adam. We're built as human beings for relationships, and our sexuality is part of who God made us to be. Secondly, as we looked at last week, the ultimate expression of our sexuality comes in a committed and exclusive relationship that is designed to last for life. Marriage, as we saw last week, is a covenant, not a contract. It's a state whereby we commit one person to another where we replicate God's unconditional and unreserved love. Not a contract where each party says, I will love you if, or I will love you until, but a covenant where we simply replicate, mirror God's love to humanity in saying to each other, I will love you. I will love you unreservedly, I will love you unconditionally, and I will go on loving you. The biblical term in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is heseth, and it means God's incredible, generous, faithful, covenant love. And the marriage relationship is supposed to replicate, mirror the relationship between God and humanity, God and the church. Not I will love you if, I will love you if you're good, I will love you if you're nice. I will love you if you're religious. I will love you if you come to church. But simply God says, I love you. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but simply because of who I am, God says. I love you, and I will go on loving you. Thirdly, in the Old Testament, marriage and procreation were linked as signs of God's blessing. If you think about the Old Testament and the situation of the people of Israel, the pioneering context of the people of Israel, they were required to marry and have children. Their very survival depended upon it. And over time, it became regarded that dying unmarried or dying as a virgin, somebody who hadn't had sex, could potentially be seen as you being cut off from the people or the blessing of God. And if you think about it, the situation, the the context of a rural agrarian society like Palestine then or somewhere like Kenya today, if you had no children and no marriage, well that meant no land. And not having any land meant that you had nowhere to grow crops. And if you've got nowhere to grow crops, That means no income, and it means no food. 
So that's the context in which marriage and procreation, children, became sort of an indicator of God's blessing. And the more children you had, it was a sign that God was blessing you more and more. And, and seemingly this, is, this has crept into the church. Um, sometimes you'll look, perhaps like me, uh, at Christian conference brochures or websites, and they'll say, Reverend so-and-so married with four children. And the next speaker is Reverend so-and-so married with five children. And then Reverend so-and-so married with six children. And you think, is it a competition? It is a league table? Uh, are all these sort of Christian speakers competing with each other to see how many children they can have? And seemingly, it are the number of children indicators of their spirituality. Sometimes it can appear that way if you look at church websites or conference brochures. And yet Jesus taught and lived a different ethic, a different way of behaving, a different way of thinking. If you think about it, Jesus lived the most fulfilled life ever lived on planet Earth, but he was single. And in his teaching and in his lifestyle, Jesus teaches a different way of living, a different way of behaving, a different way of viewing relationships. And he taught this new ethic, a new way of life, that the values of the kingdom of God were to trump, pardon the expression, the family values, if you like, of the Old Testament. Perhaps you can remember those times when people came to Jesus and told him that his mother or his brothers and sisters were nearby. And Jesus would shock them by, by saying, I haven't got any brothers or sisters. And then he would look to his disciples and he would say, these are my brothers and sisters. Indeed, he goes even further in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 46 to 50. He says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what Jesus is doing, he's saying, I'm creating a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of looking at relationships, which actually sort of give a foretaste of heaven. And in these relationships, in this place that came to be known as the church, the relationships were to be qualitatively different, but it was to be a place where all are welcome. A community which prefigures the recreation or restoration of heaven or eternity in which there is no marriage. One of the things that Jesus taught again and again and again was that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will not be any married people. There will neither be any single people. There will just be people. Because the nature of the new creation will be so different to this one that we won't be in marriage relationships. We'll be restored into perfect relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, but will also be restored in perfect relationship with each other. And there will be no marriage in heaven. 
something that occasionally my wife reminds me of with great joy. One day, Kathy will no longer be married to me. In heaven, there is no marriage. There is just people. Jesus at one point compared people who don't marry to be like angels, Luke chapter 20. In the words of one writer, Hal Zhu, he said this, Without demeaning marriage, the New Testament gives a new dignity to singleness. Both are equally valid ways to serve God. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, Paul affirms this. Paul, in that passage and in that chapter that Hector read for us a few moments ago, says some very striking words. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, it is good for unmarried people to remain unmarried. He said, I wish that everybody was like me. Now, Paul had probably been married. He could not have risen to the level that he did within Judaism and not been married. He was on the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling council. He describes himself as a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. So he would have had to have been married, given that they were still governed by the sort of Old Testament way of thinking about marriage, that it was a sign of God's blessing. But by now, Paul is probably widowed. His wife has died and he's single again. And he says, I wish that everybody is like me. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32 to 35. So you can be, he says, firstly, free from anxieties or concerns, anxious only about the things of the Lord, and that you can focus on living to please God. He said, I wish that everybody was single. Because if you're single, you can focus on living to please God. If you're married, then you have divided loyalties. You're anxious about pleasing your husband or wife. But if you're single, then you can focus just on living to please God. Now, the early church carried this on. The early church fathers, such as Augustine and Chrysostom, taught that marriage was good, but celibacy, singleness, and maybe the two aren't always the same, was better. Now, this wasn't easy. In the Roman Empire, under Roman law, most people were compelled by law to get married. They were compelled to get married. The reason for this is because the men in Roman society had all sorts of rights but no responsibilities, as we saw last week when we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 and the way in which Paul flips that on his head and starts to teach that the men do have some responsibilities within the church. Under Roman law, they had so many rights but no responsibilities. If they hadn't been compelled to get married by law, Then they were free to have sex with slaves. They were free to have sex with anybody and everybody they wanted and did. And so Caesar Augustus, the emperor at this time, brought in a law where you had to get married. And if you were a bachelor, if you were a single guy and didn't get married, you were fined. Blokes, just think about that. You were fined. Never mind three points on your license. You are fined for not getting married. 
If you were widowed, if you were a woman, and you were of childbearing age, and you didn't remarry within three years, then you also were breaking the law. Now, the way in which the church thought differently about these things influenced the Roman Empire. Significantly, when Constantine legalized Christianity in the 4th century, he repealed those marriage laws of Caesar Augustus. And it was then that celibacy started to become part of a rule of life for priests and monks and nuns. And it did so because up until that time, for the previous two or three hundred years, singleness had been regarded in the church as better than marriage. Do you hear that line from from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7? Um, Marriage is good, but singleness is better. So that's the biblical background of what happened in Old Testament times, of what happened in the New Testament, of what happened when Jesus was here, and the different ethic that he introduced, and the different attitude that Jesus introduced. But what should people who are single in the church do today? Three very quick things, and we'll get Joe and Tim and Gemma up. Firstly, I believe that whatever our situation, Jesus wants us to live life to the full. John chapter 10 verse 10. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. That's why Jesus came. And on this day of all days, Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the gift of the life of God, the power of God, the spirit of God being available for every single person so that God's peace, God's power, God's love, God's joy, God's hope, Everything of God, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, can be at work in us, whether we're married or whether we're single, God longs for each of us to live life to the full. But if we're single, we need to have a think. Healthy and fulfilled singleness doesn't just happen. Because of the way in which God made us as human beings, thinking back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. If we're single, there will always be that heartache as we're made for intimacy and relationships. Now, of course, the tragedy is that some who are married may also find a similar but different heartache, which may be even more painful because they're married but actually still lack that intimacy because they're in a loveless marriage. That's a reality for many people as well. So if you're single, don't just look at people who are married and go, well, it's okay for them. Because the reality of lots of marriages is that they may not be healthy places either. But what does it mean if you're single? How do you cultivate, how do you look for, in appropriate ways, that intimacy, that need for friendship? As human beings, we're built for friendship, for company, for fun, for intimacy. And it's striking that although single and being himself in perfect relationship with his heavenly father, Jesus needed friends. He created a company of friends, the disciples, 12 close friends. Within those 12 close friends, he had three of them who were even closer friends. And of those three, he had one of them, John, who is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved best. So even though... He is in perfect relationship with God the Father. 
Jesus, because of his humanity, still needed friends. I think that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asks his disciples to go with him because he, he needed the close physical proximity of friends at his sharpest moment. He needed to know that they were there, even though they fell asleep. He needed the companionship of human beings to be there. So you and I need those sort of relationships. So how do you, if you're single, appropriately look for that intimacy, that level of commitment, that level of friendship? And for those of us who are married, how do we sensitively invite and welcome appropriately people who are single into our relationships, into our families? to share meals and holidays, to spend time with our kids if we have them, and to regard the extended family, not the nuclear family, as the biblical norm. Over the last 30 or 40 years, through things like care for the family, focus on the family, somehow the idea came about in evangelicalism that the nuclear family, 2.4 children, a golden Labrador and a Volvo, is the biblical expectation. That is not the biblical expectation. The biblical norm, again and again, it refers to the household, the oikos, where people were welcomed in and included into family life. So the challenge is to those of us who are married, are we opening up our homes in appropriate ways to people who are single so they can feel something of our family life? And to those of us who are single, are we asking people who are married to include us in their family life in appropriate ways? And then thirdly and finally, we can live without sex, but we can't live without intimacy. Now, we may be single, and we may be called to celibacy. That may be something that God calls us to. But we may be called to be single until we get married. That's something slightly different. But either way, we need to find ways of ensuring our needs are met, but in appropriate ways. So that's the theory. What is the reality? I'm going to ask Joe and Tim and Gemma if they can join me uh, up here. And uh, I'll put your microphones on, number one. Number three. And number two. Can't get that one. There we go. There you go, Tim. <laughs> And if it's not going well, we will do a Westlife impersonation and go for the key change. Um, Joe, what are some of the challenges and advantages of being single? Um, I think some of the challenges are different in the different decades. So, yes, the 30-, 40-year-old decade is different from the 50-, 60-year-old decade. Yes, I mentioned 60. Um, and I think some of the challenges that society puts on one in the 30s and 40s is, is huge. And, yeah, of course we all want to get married. Um, but I think they're different when you're in your 50s and 60s, when some of your friends' marriages are breaking down mm. and you just think, okay, perhaps it's not so bad after all. And, and somebody always, which really helped me, to be idyllically married is the best. Mm. 
To be happily single is next best. To be unhappily single is third best. And it's the worst thing to be unhappily married. So, yeah, I think there are cha different challenges for the different decades. Tim? Challenges and advantages of being single. Um, yeah, I think um, the, the, ch the challenges are um, that, you know, there is great value in, in a marriage, in, in that intimacy that you, you get with someone. Um, and as a single person, you do, you do miss out on that and you do, um, sometimes, well, you do long for it. Sometimes it's, it's only a very slight longing, sometimes quite a great one. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's always there. Uh, I think on the flip side, uh, I guess the advantage of, of a single life is that it's a lot, it is a lot simpler. So um, as, as we've touched on, like, as, a, as a married person, your concerns would be rightly around your husband, your wife, your, your children. Um, but as a single person, that, it, it frees you up and you, and you have time and, um, to, do, to do other things and to concern yourself more with the wider church, perhaps, which is, which is an advantage. Yeah. Gemma, you're single. Yep, that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. oh, just just checking. Uh, just checking. Yeah. How, how do you ensure healthy relationships and healthy intimacy? Am I not answering that first question? <laughs> well, I just thought we'd crack on. Oh, okay. <laughs> how, how do you ensure healthy intimacy in relationships? Ah, my answer is really good. Okay, let's hear Thanks. your answer then. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe that's why I'm single, a bit too demanding. <laughs> Thanks. I'll make it good, I promise. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so... My answer to the question that I actually wasn't asked just there, um, <laughs> but that I'm going to answer, um, is that the challenges and the, um, and the disadvantages are, and the advantages are pretty obvious. Like, the challenges are that it kind of sucks going to a wedding or a party by yourself, um, and coming home to nobody, like, is pretty rubbish but the advantages are like really great. I can go and socialize every night and um, nobody cares. Like I, can, like I can leave my dishes like, and nobody's gonna care. Um, and I can travel and I have loads of friends like throughout the world, um, which is fab. Um, but I suppose for me, the, my challenges and my uh, what I take as an advantage is personal for me and like Joe said is different throughout the time when I've been single. I suppose one of the deeper challenges for me and what I try and live my life holding is that this isn't what I imagined. Like I didn't imagine I would be 32 and live by myself and but this is my life and this is my story. And I suppose I choose not to um, balance the advantages and the challenges and be like, well, everything's fine when actually it's not or that everything sucks and my life is absolutely fine. 
but really trying to live out the story that I have just now, the story that I live in and the life that I have of today, whatever that looks like. Okay. Um, healthy intimacy, Joe. How friendships, helpful ways in which people who are married include you, Unhelpful ways in which, as Gemma's touched on already, maybe at times you feel excluded or, or marginalised. Does that happen? Does it happen in church life? Um, I, I, I do think, when I became a Christian at 19, it was a very, very profound experience. So I felt as a whole person then, in a way that I hadn't felt a whole person before that. So... I, I think it's not that I haven't been asked to be married. <laughs> I made that choice. Um, part two. <laughs> um, and, and, and that actually, um, in many ways... Apparently it's a competition. I, I've not. <laughs> I, I, would, I would have my life again. Mm. I, would, I would actually say that at the age I am now, I'd be very happy to have my life again. That's not saying that when you're 37, 38, it's, it's difficult and intimacy, but I suppose I see intimacy as different now. I have my friends from Norfolk here. We've had an incredibly intimate weekend because we've been intellectually discussing stuff and walking. They, they've got a very secure relationship. I'm totally included. I think sometimes single people are, feel a little bit tricky when they're with a married couple whose relationship isn't secure. Mm. Um, and that's a reflection on the married couple, not the single person. Um, anyway, Tim, any insights? Um, I, I would say that I've I found the church incredibly helpful as being a single person, actually. Mm. Um, I've moved to two or three different cities in the last few years not knowing anyone and so the confidence that I can have in moving to a new city and knowing that I can get plugged into a church as a single person and there's that ready-made community and family there is tremendously encouraging um, and so I've seen the church as, as just a, a positive thing um, in, in that sense um, and uh, yeah the friendships that you can get from church and um, the ways that you can serve with other people in that community is, is also really really good I think Gemma thanks sorry about not answering this the other time <laughs> um, yeah I suppose like Sometimes you do relationships really well and sometimes you mess them up. And I think being single, there's more opportunity to mess relationships up because of the intimacy thing and because you really long for that. And that's something that's deep within us all. Um, but I suppose for me, I have loads of great friends and loads of great people in my life. And I try and live friendships with honesty and with um, really in a, in a real way so that I foster that intimacy and holding 
on to the fact that I don't have that one person and that means that there is a loss and I think sometimes if you try and find that in relationships that are not in a marriage relationship then it can go pretty badly and it can be pretty unhealthy and so I try and kind of hold that and say actually there is a loss and that that that's okay because you find that intimacy in lots of different places and um and we live with loss and grief all of us whether we're married or single um yeah and finally what what would you want to say either to people who are single or to people who are married um what would you want to say would be that you think might be helpful either for you individually or for 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 them who are single or them who are married Anything you'd like to say? To be honest with you, Dave, I haven't, in that I, I have, I've always felt myself here. I've always felt included. Um, I've always been asked to be involved with things. I've never been on the outside. I suppose I'm an extrovert, mm -hmm. so I've been willing to be involved. Um, and it might be more difficult for somebody who's naturally introverted and single who might feel then it's excluded, but I've tended, you know, to step forward and if I'm asked to do something, I'll do it. But that takes a bit of courage, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Tim? Yeah, I think I would echo that. Um, you know, there's no areas that I've been involved in in the church, so like youth or soul food or, or whatever, that um, I would feel that there's been a distinction made between married people or single people, and everyone's been treated one and the same, um, which has been, you know, which has been fantastic. Um, and, you know, I think it's probably up to all of us, it's, it's our calling as a church to proactively develop relationships, whether we're single, whether we're married, with other people, whether they're single, whether they're married. Um, and that, that is a responsibility that I think each of us have and to, to be able to open up our homes, to be able to share meals with people, to um, you know, just share life with each other, I think is just really a really good point about the church and what it can do. And Gemma, are there particular ways in which you've, things that have been helpful to you or unhelpful mm. in the way you've observed other single people or some married people respond to you? Mm. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I always find is hilarious, and I am like the worst culprit of this, is like the first thing you want to know about somebody is whether they're single or married. I'm like looking at their finger. I like, you know, and... <laughs> I don't want to live like that. Like, and, you know, people, like, guys are good at figuring out, aren't we? Like, we're like, so, what, where do you live? One bedroom flat, okay, maybe not. <laughs> you know, and, and just, like, we sh I don't want to be like that personally. I don't want to be defined by my relationship status. I don't believe that is my identity. And I think often that's what we do in the church and we, we want so desperately to 
box people and know where they are. And then when you're not married or you're in between or relationships are complex or complicated, then it can be really difficult. And I want the church to be a place. I want to be part of a church that's a place where we don't do that, where we actually see our identity in being known by Jesus and being found in him and being loved by God and for that to be something that categorizes us and that we see beyond just whether I have a diamond on my finger if I don't that is not who I am I am something more than that and I want I thank you for seeing that lots of people but I just I challenge myself because I want to be somebody who doesn't see people and box them um, so yeah thank you and and thank you to, for the three of you because what I've asked you to do this evening isn't easy and you've made yourself very vulnerable um, in, in coming up here and, and sharing your hearts with us so I'd love to pray for you um, and then pray for, for us all. So should we stand?